In this episode, I'm joined by Nolan Gertz, who is Assistant Professor of Applied Philosophy at the University of Twente. In this episode, we discuss his book, Nihilism, alongside topics such as meaning, pessimism, active and passive nihilism, as well as the films Office Space and Falling Down. I'd like to say a big thank you to all our paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you have enjoyed any of Hermitix's content or this podcast and would like to support Hermitix going into the future, then please find links in the description below. And this will also allow you to now get exclusive content. Enjoy. So, Nolan Gertz, thanks very much for joining us on Hermitix's podcast to discuss your book, Nihilism or Nihilism. Uh, from the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series. Uh, nihilism is essential knowledge for everyone. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, before we jump in with nihilism and, and uh, this book, just tell us a little bit, a bit about, about yourself and, uh, and what it is you do. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm uh, Nolan Gertz. I'm an assistant professor uh, of applied philosophy at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. I'm from the United States. Um, that's that's about all I do. I don't uh, I don't remember what I did anymore. <laughs> In what sense do you remember what you what you did? Were you something else? Well, I mean the the before times, the uh, before COVID. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah, it's a different world. So we're going to be discussing nihilism, which is a tricky topic because you just you're talking really about meaninglessness and nothing and somehow applying meaning to it but before before we do so i do have to ask you the hermetics question uh you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listen in on the conversation who do you pick uh yeah that's a hard one uh, i think almost anyone i would choose would not speak english so i would have a hard time understanding them but if <laughs> if i could uh let's see uh i guess i would have to go with nietzsche uh, du Bois and Simone de Beauvoir. Okay, okay. I know of de Beauvoir and Nietzsche. I'm not. I'm not massive. Uh, not sort of wised up on du Bois. So, what's what's their work? Yeah, W. E. B. Du Bois. Um, he uh, is born after the Civil War. Uh, dies during the uh, Civil Rights Movement. So he uh, basically lived through. Uh, what was supposed to be, you know, America uh, fixing its mistakes after slavery and instead uh, just basically bringing slavery back under a new name, uh, the Jim Crow Reconstruction era. So, um, you know, he's, he's a fascinating philosopher, uh, political thinker, sociologist, um, journalist. Um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a Marxist. Um, but he's also, um, you know, deeply poetic. So he's, a, he's just a really good writer. Um, he studied William James, mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's got a he's got a fascinating life on top of uh, you know, like souls of black folk. Um, you know, this this really interesting ideas about what it actually means to be divided by race, um, and this idea that uh, you know. We're not we're not all just people that actually you do have very different experiences in life. And uh, you actually see the see the world through the eyes of the oppressor and see yourself through the eyes of the oppressor. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very important. Do you think that um, that actually does have some sort of 
implicit relationship with nihilism in the sense that for some people, some experiences would be basically meaningless, right? They can't empathize. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's uh, this idea that we can take for granted that sort of, you know, when people say, you know, I'm, I'm colorblind, I don't see race. Um, and treat that as like a, a common sense, uh, centrist, non-political position instead of, you know, a, a uh, radically uh, ideological position that, that really uh, does damage to the ability to actually advance political. Yeah, it's like they've, they've gone one step too far. It's like, yeah, maybe one day, but right now all those differences yeah. are still apparent. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm always... Uh fairly wary of uh, centrism in in any form really sounds almost like a bit, bit like a cop out really yeah <laughs> um are you are you are you do you align yourself politically yeah I, I think i'm uh left i don't know if i could be more left there are probably things i could be more left about um but uh yeah i think uh I'm angry all the time in the way that leftists tend to be angry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so what, what made you so interested in meaninglessness to, to write a full book about it? Yeah. Well, uh, they always say, write what you know. Um, <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, this, this is really um, basically my, my third book on nihilism. Because my, my first book didn't have it in the title. It was called The Philosophy of War and Exile. But my, my concept of exile, I think, was actually tied to this concept of nihilism. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, even my undergraduate thesis was on boredom um, and trying to understand the philosophy of boredom. So I think I've, I've been obsessed for a long time. And I think why I got into philosophy in the first place was trying to figure out, you know, what it means to be human um, why we do what we do, what things mean. Um, and yeah, I've been sort of bothered by the answers that I've, that I've, uh, seen around. So you went straight to the core of what's, what's the meaning of any of our actions. If we implicitly understand there may very well be absolutely no meaning. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think, uh, I remember, for example, I was studying at the London school of economics, and I was on a trip with two classmates and they were, uh, you know, econ uh, uh, master's uh, uh, students. And they were both reading the, uh, the FT, the Financial Times. And I asked them, you know, why, why are you reading that? And they were like, well, we study, we study economics, so it's, it's important to read it. And I said, right, but, but why? And you could tell the more I asked why and the, the more baseless their answers were, other than their sense that they're supposed to be doing it, um, the more agitated, the more agitated it made them. Right? That uh, just take our word for it, <laughs> leave us alone. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many. I mean, even down to sort of really basic things in life. There's well, basically everything in life is like that. Like uh, I recently sort of changed my sleeping habits, and then basically sleeping on the floor. <laughs> it sounds mad. It sounds mad, right? It sounds insane, but it's better for your back. But then I was reading sort of these peer, well, these these peer reviewed articles about it, and one of the questions was, "Why do you sleep on a bed?" And it's like, you know, it's one of those moments you go, "I can't really answer that." 
Um, right. Not that it has too much to do with meaninglessness, but it does have something to do with that implicit drive towards a, a constant need for an anchor, right? But I mean, am I am I right in thinking is that, is that your agreed upon term of nihilism that it is just meaninglessness? There's no meaning to anything. Well, uh, yeah. So I think the the key for me was the relationship between nihilism and escapism, and the idea of um, you know wanting wanting to believe um, that your life is meaningful, that your actions are meaningful, mm. um, and being completely unwilling uh, to question that assumption mm. and getting sort of violently uh, angry and agitated whenever people do try to question it. Um, and so my, my books have really been focused more on the, the sort of techniques uh, that we use to to avoid to escape from having to think about these things. Mm. Okay, okay. Because you, I mean, in thinking about meaninglessness, you you, you are, obviously you implicitly get caught up in that question of what is meaning, what is meaningful. Right. Um, and I mean, do 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 you think all discussions of nihilism sort of would gravitate towards the sense of you know uh, meaning being just relative? Yeah, I think. You know, there are, there are various ways of interpreting nihilism, and I certainly don't claim to be the, the uh, final say on the matter. And uh, my, my Amazon reviews certainly speak to the people who have different opinions about what nihilism is. Um, but yeah, I think it is important. You know, there are, there are people who see it as a positive doctrine um, about being able to say, you know, this is how it is. So life is meaningless. Knowledge is meaningless. Truth is meaningless. And, you know, and you just run down the list and just say no to each of those things. Um, so my, my books have not really been interested in that aspect, um, but much more in, again, nihilism as, as a way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so not as, a, as an ideology, but as a way of, of navigating uh, reality or I guess try to avoid navigating reality. Um, and that's also what I thought was, uh, you know, so powerful in Nietzsche. And I think initially got me inspired to write about it was, you know, that I think he was really good at diagnosing uh, all of these kind of techniques. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. So it's less of a, you know, when we're speaking about epistemological nihilism or, th- or even theological nihilism or moral nihilism, uh, it's less to do with that and actually almost seems more towards your undergraduate thing you spoke about there in that sense of boredom in the sense of well, what happens What happens with nihilism when, you know, it's no longer a huge, is God real? Are the big questions, you know, meaningful? It's uh, everyday life. Do you, do you yeah. think, do you, what, what do you think the big changes there then between, you know, once you start, uh, I mean, to, to apply nihilism is a tricky, tricky topic, yeah. but uh, once you, once you sort of have a, a nihilistic life, what, what, what happens then? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's it's important that uh, the people who think life is meaningful, the people who think life is meaningless, uh, don't live radically different lives. Um, so this is also, again, what I find kind of fascinating is, you know, when you ask people, uh, does God exist? I don't know that their answer matters that much. Um that it's, it's much more about, you know, how does that shape your actual activities in life? And if you have the people who say, you know, I'm an atheist, uh, but are still, you know, deeply embedded in science 
and, and sort of elevating science to a religion, uh, then it doesn't really matter what your thoughts about God are. You, mm -hmm. you still have religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, again, something Nietzsche was really good at, was the idea that you know religion and science are not enemies. Um, religion just becomes science. Mm -hmm. And uh, this idea that, you know, what's more important than religion is sort of religiosity and the way that people religiously, uh, dogmatically pursue things, whether it be uh, God, sports, uh, Netflix, video games, what have you. It's still that sort of, you know, this is where I plant my flag. This is where I derive meaning. And this is what will go unquestioned. Do you think it's possible for 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 a human to to live almost uh, you could define it almost as a pure nihilistic life? You know, they have absolutely no anchor of salvation in that sense. Do you think that's that's? But it, in doing so, would they then just make their pure meaninglessness, or would that would that just be madness? Well, you'd have to ask Trump, but uh, you know, I think I think he is a good example of uh, you know how vacuous you can really be as a human being. And that you can be, you know, so the common connection between nihilism and void and abyss, um, you know, Trump is sort of a, the personification of those things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the way that he sort of inspires others to follow and try to model their lives on his lifelessness uh, is really what's, you know, destroying America right now. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's important to appreciate that people can be, uh, yeah, com completely devoid of of anything human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you oh, do, do you think? I mean, it's interesting you brought in the the word human there. Do you, I mean, in relation to sort of the the Trumpist capitalist uh, <laughs> life drive of a uh, free floating on you know american entrepreneurial spirit which goes from the next thing to the next thing to the next do you think there's uh you know i imagine you do because you're you're left wing but uh do you think there is something inherently almost fluxingly nihilistic in capitalism in that it just it's 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 plants its flag here and then the next day it's here and it doesn't it has absolutely no it's completely relative it's wherever the profit is yeah no i think uh this is something uh you know i in my my last book i wrote about marks um, and my, my nihilism and technology book didn't really appear because I sort of made a decision. Um, you know, it's either I'm going to do Marx or I'm going to do Nietzsche and I did Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And then in the, in the, in the book after I try to move more towards Marx and maybe the next book, it'll be even more towards Marx. But I do think it's important. Um, I, I do see them as having, uh, deeply connected projects. I think they would have hated each other, but I do think it is important um, that when you look at um, Marx's early essay on alienated labor, for example, um, that's deeply resonant with a lot of what Nietzsche talks about with nihilism and this idea that, you know, the worker um, goes to work, not because they want to, because they have to, and they spend all their time doing things but they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really know why they're doing it. And rather than having answers to those questions, you accept a paycheck in exchange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's that notion of, um, well, 
uh, as we were talking about, an organized religion, which just gives you this uh, safety blanket for life. Yeah. So if you if you watch a movie like Office Space, <laughs> one of uh, my favorites. Yeah, I mean it, it's hard not to see the critique of capitalism as also a critique of nihilism. But I mean to 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 almost <laughs> to, to use Office Space as a as a good note for for nihilism, there is a a great example of uh, Nietzschean um, active nihilism in there, in the sense you know. I did nothing today and it was the best day of my life in the sense that all of a sudden he's free. And But in doing that, in becoming in that protagonist, Peter, becoming completely free of those almost Marxist, you know, alienation and the, the idea that you need to work, etc. Right, right. And almost he becomes free of chronic time, right? He's just doesn't care. He then just just heads towards pleasure and hedonism and doing what he wants to do. So, I mean... You, you're not escaping meaning, but you are moving towards perhaps a more uh, almost like utilitarian, personally utilitarian right. view. I mean, would, would would you say that's perhaps where an unchecked nihilism could just gravitate? Yeah, towards? I think P- Peter's character is interesting because he is sort of, um, again, a sort of a personification of nihilism in the beginning of the movie. Um, you know, that great scene where he says, you know, uh, every day is worse than the last. So any day you see me is the worst day of my life. Um, but it, but he, keep, but he keeps doing right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think the active nihilist in the movie, you know, because Peter basically becomes the the Tolstoyan hero who derives meaning from physical labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I think the real hero of Office Space from an active nihilist perspective is uh, Stephen Root's character. Uh, who who puts uh, so much emphasis on his little red stapler, and when it's taken from him, burns down the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the one who's shown at the end on a on a tropical beach. Uh, so it's sort of like he won, right? Yeah. Um, and that sort of active nihilist idea of you know if if uh, if it's not working, burn it down. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I do think he's he's the one who's willing to do that. I mean that's so, in, that's interesting though because he takes he takes so much crap from every, from life up and but he has that he has that node right, right to constantly hold on to and once that's gone then he finally cracks right, right yeah and I think it's important how much he doesn't care about how he's treated right and that he is able uh, to sort of give himself meaning. And then when that's taken from him, yeah, he, he's like, all right, I'm going to burn down the building. <laughs> like I told you, I told you I was going to do it. And so I did. So I guess the interesting question there is, you know, in what sense are we uh, sort of perpetually lying to ourselves? If we understand, you know, just to take that red stapler as a metaphor, if you say like this red stapler is my one salvation in life, I have to hold on to this metaphorically speaking. If we sort of understand that, though, if we, we on a meta level, we know that that is our salvation and we're holding on to it, you know, we know it's it, it could just fall apart any moment. You know, what are we, are, we, are we lying to ourselves or are we just constantly developing something? Yeah. Well, it is interesting that that, that stapler um, didn't exist in reality outside the movie. Um, but so many people wanted it that they started making with the red stapler after the movie. Oh. So uh, yeah, it did. It did seem to to speak to people, uh, whether it was just you know sort of a kitschy souvenir, or sort of symbolic of their own lives. 
But uh, yeah, I do think it's interesting how many people, you know, I do think, and as, again, this is often how movies portray it, uh, you know, the same like sort of Michael Douglas's falling down and that sort of, you know, this, I, I, I'm not going to take it anymore, right? I'm mad mm-hmm. as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. That sort of network uh, mindset of Howard Beale, right? Um, and I do think it's that sort of uh, fascination uh, again, with the sort of Marxist, you know, why did the revolution not happen? And I think the Nietzschean answer is because we are so good at taking so much crap mm-hmm. and we can really adapt to, to really anything. Um, so yeah, what, what would it take to actually break you? What would it take to actually drive you from passive to active nihilism, right? What would, uh, to take, uh, yeah. So what, what is your red stapler is a, is an interesting question. That is an interesting question. I mean, you know, it's an interesting question in this. I mean, it applies to a lot of religious traditions as well as like the idea of, uh, in occult works, you know, the, the crossing of the abyss or sort of the, the dismissal of the ego or, you know, that final thing, which breaks any hold you have. But I mean, taking falling down an office space is two great examples. I mean, one thing that's key there that I can see is that when they move from, passive to active nihilism especially michael douglas in falling down which also now now you're quoting these films i realized all my films are heavily nihilist uh uh you know the the realization that as soon as he does crack in that horrible hot traffic jam he uh he no longer really has a teleology he's just sort of fluxing in the world you know he just walks to that park to enjoy the 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 one green space there seems to be in that horrible city and then just sort of goes to a shop and there doesn't seem to be too much of a purpose and i mean <clears throat> perhaps perhaps you know what happens to time then what happens to time once we sort of break are we are we then just like well we're just being you know can, can, as soon as you then develop you say right i'm going to do this i have this plan this project are you then potentially entering yourself back into a sort of uh, nihilistic slavery again yeah well that's what's sort of fascinating about um the the uh the rival figure of the police officer who's, you know, three days from retirement, right? <laughs> that, that sort of classic, uh, you know, I, I got to stop this guy. He's on a rampage. And then the number of people, I think that's uh, Robert Duvall, mm-hmm. the number of people who, who identify themselves with Michael Douglas mm-hmm. and, and uh, the sort of anti-hero, you know, whether it's Walter White, Tony Soprano, that sort of, um, you know, or even thinking about, uh, you know, Oliver Stone's Wall Street and the number mm. of people who are like, wow, I really want to work on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I do think it's kind of fascinating how um, even when it stares you in the face, uh, look at how awful everything is, that you do, again, perpetuate it. Um, and you, you seem sort of locked in a cycle so that, uh, you know, just every weekend when you think about how great it is to have free time and you feel relieved from pressure and then you just go right back into it on Monday. Mm. And instead of saying, you know, I should try to have more Saturdays, uh, just being like, Oh, it's Monday again. Well, can't wait till next week. And then knowing that retirement is something that's, you know, in the distance as, as your goal in life, that you're not going to be able to enjoy until you're too old to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And you might never make it anyway, especially if, you know, climate change or the economy collapses or, you know, so all of the things that stand to, you know, slap you in the face and be like, what are you doing? 
and you just say, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to think about that. Okay, okay. I mean, this is, uh, you know, my increasingly becoming my least favorite philosophical thing. But this is very, no, not nihilism. But this is very, uh, like the, the, the Camus reading of Sisyphus, right? And I, uh-huh. I becoming, I'm close to detesting this reading. Because I realized the other day that if you focus on the fact he uses the word imagine, you know, uh-huh. it's not Sisyphus is happy. We have to imagine it, which is basically an implicit lie, right? Which is, right. you know, what we're going on about with this, uh, you know, weekend again, can't wait for Friday. You're imagining yourself right. happy right. in that situation when we all sort of accept that we're not. But I mean, so what's the difference between nihilism? You know, if we take this sort of our standard Western working week of, thank God it's Friday, you know, and we all agree on this implicit ridiculous relationship of work that we have. And, our, and all we want isn't, should we just question work generally? It's what about four day working week? <laughs> right. Yeah, but after that, it's going to be three. And then you're eventually, eventually, at some point, people will realize they don't like working office jobs. But that might be it. But so, so what's the difference? Um, do you think between that, the, the absurdist, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill and you just go, oh, well, I'm happy, and a nihilist, you know, reading? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really want to go into Camus uh, in my book precisely because. Well, one myth of Sisyphus is incredibly hard to read. Um, but I do think it is important, the idea of suicide as the real philosophical question in life. Um, and if you look at his novels like The Stranger or The Plague, you know, he's clearly very occupied with nihilism. Um, but I do think, yeah, that sort of... Uh, the absurdist response, I do think, has a, has some history in Nietzsche as well. Um, in the third essay of the genealogy, he seems to suggest towards the end that the real enemy of nihilism uh, is, is not science, uh, but, but comedy. And the ability to sort of laugh in the face of uh, these, these uh, you know, absurd, serious people and make them... And this is really, I think, the role of, of you know, great stand-up comedians, uh, you know, throughout history and today is this idea of um, this is a this is a space uh, to really do what philosophers used to do, right? To to question what we take for granted, mm-hmm. um, and to have that sort of release of laughter in the face of these things that other in other spaces we would never laugh at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, again, important, uh, you know, that Simone de Beauvoir in her analysis of nihilism connects it to what she calls a spirit of seriousness, uh, similar to Kierkegaard. And again, this idea that um, the serious man, as she calls it, is sort of on the tipping point from nihilism. Mm-hmm. So she wants to make that a distinction that you're, you know, you're, you're unwilling to be an adult uh, you want desperately to live like a child again. You want desperately to have someone telling you what to do. So again, why Marx, the revolution didn't happen. You want a boss. You want someone to tell you what to do. Um, and that they are the ones who take all the responsibility so that you can be free. Mm-hmm. So sort of cleaving the Sartrean freedom responsibility, you be responsible, I'll be free. Uh, which nowadays is what we do with robots. So, of course, we still have the same idea, right? Algorithm, you be responsible, I'll be free. Um, but, yeah, I do think it is very important um, that 
for de Beauvoir, it's when that doesn't work, then you become a nihilist. So you could um, go a long time living that way. Um, and it's only when that breaks down for, you know, for de Beauvoir's reading at least, that that's when you go, okay, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not playing this game. I'm not playing any game. Um, this is all just shit and I'm going to destroy it as quickly as possible. What happens after you destroy it? Yeah, well, I think that's always the, are you going to go the self-destructive path or the world-destructive path? Mm -hmm. And so this is where she starts talking about Nazism, for example. Um, you know, this idea that fascism and nihilism have a lot in common. And I think uh, Han Arendt talks about this as well, that what makes fascism and totalitarianism so appealing um, is that it gives you this, you know, what we call the big lie today. Um, and you want to believe it because it's better than reality. Mm -hmm. And this idea that that's how, how the, the radical right wins is by not having to look at reality, not having to question things, just have the big leader be your big father. And again, this paradise of, of complete lawlessness, complete freedom as the sort of uh, exchange uh, for, you know, marching whoever you don't like off to death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Do you, do you think that there is only a, a certain level of intensity in one's nihilism? Do you think you could be, certain people could be more nihilistic? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think, um, you know, the sort of everyday nihilism, um, that we all engage in. And then there's the, yeah, how, how much worse can it get? Right. So I think we have normalized a lot of nihilism. Um, and this is, again, what my nihilism and technology book was, was about, was really how we normalize these things and how technology is really great for doing that. So if you said, uh, yeah, I can't wait for the weekend. I'm going to, you know, binge Netflix for 48 hours. People wouldn't say like, you need help. They'd mm -hmm. be like, oh, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have fun. Let me know what you're going to watch. I'll watch it too, kind of quick. So again, this sort of, um, uh, yeah, that we, we accept that level of nihilism is perfectly fine. But if you said, uh, right, like I'm going to, uh, you know, sleep on my lawn naked because who cares, mm -hmm. right? None of this doesn't matter. Um, that that's when we say, okay, that's, that's a bit too far. Mm -hmm. Like you've, uh, so there are people who obviously live that way. There are people who, you know, get high 24 seven. There are people who are drunk 24 seven. Um, and we seem to say, well, that's too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sort of, you know, we become Aristotelians and think that you have to have the golden mean of nihilism. <laughs> I wonder where that line is. I wonder what the, the activity one could undertake where people would almost be divided and whether or not that's acceptable, an acceptable amount of meaninglessness. But I mean, that's an interesting question, right? I mean, that, because it, because uh, the examples you gave are, are really good because it sort of emphasizes the fact that people want a time filler, right? Because if you said, like you said, you know, what are you doing this weekend? I'm, I'm watching Netflix. That's it. I'm binging it. Well, it doesn't even for a lot of people now. It doesn't even seem to matter. You know, it's interesting that they say I'm I'm binging. I'm not you know not I'm binging a fantasy TV series. I'm binging literally a 
a, a supplier. You know, it's like saying I'm binging Gmail. Well, you know, that's that's a that's right, a content right. provider. But then if you that's fine. But if you said, well, I'm probably going to go sit in a field nearby and stare at the the sky for probably most of the weekend. People will think you're mad. But is that because in doing so, you're fully accepting, you know, you're fully just uh placing yourself in the fact that time is just passing. There's nothing there to fill it. You're just accepting that you're alive and you're being you know, is there something that we find almost abhorrent about that, that almost, you know, oh, you're comfortable in your own skin, you know, you you don't need a, right. a, I guess, thinking about technology, you don't need a, you know, an apparatus to, to fill your time. Yeah, no, I do think it's important that sort of, um, I, I, I am, uh, you know, made comforted by your being as nihilistic as I am. So it's when, when you go further, um, then I'm made uncomfortable because then it does sort of force you to question, well, why don't I do that? So if someone said, you know, like, I'm just, I'm not going to work. <laughs> like, I'm just going to stop. Like, I'm just not going to go to work. And uh, when people are like, well, how are you going to pay your bills? And you're just, I'm not going to pay my bills. <laughs> and it's, you know, how are you going to pay the rent? I'm not going to. <laughs> and then like, you're going to, you're going to go to jail. And you're like, well, then I'll go to jail. And it's again, this sort of, um, we start policing each other um, and sort of, yeah, that all of these anxieties, um, instead of it being directed to yourself, you, you externalize onto the other person. So it's not, why do I do these things? It's why aren't you doing? Mm -hmm. And I think it's similar with, it's not just that I binge Netflix. It's why aren't you binging? So if, if you do say, well, I'm just going to sit in a field it's again, this sort of like, oh, you think you're better than me. <laughs> like you immediately take offense that you're not going to do the same thing I'm doing in a sort of, uh, you know, uh, existentialist, uh, you know, I, I set the value for actions by what I do. And I assume that you accept my valuing of things in the same way. So that, I mean, that, that clears up your, why you said you see nihilism and fascism as sort of connected um you know that that there's just this implicit idea that there's meaning like you you should be doing it we should all yeah. be doing it and we'll make you do it because otherwise we sort of realize it might all crumble i mean that's uh, makes a lot of sense <laughs> so why yeah. why is it that uh, nihilists often get a get confused with pessimists and they're often seen as you know broody and edgy and things like this yeah, well, I think it's, it's again, um, if you say life is meaningless, people think you're suicidal mm -hmm. instead of you saying, no, 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 um, I've, I've now reckoned with uh, freedom that comes from admitting life is meaningless. So instead of seeing these things as actually optimistic, right, mm -hmm. life is meaningless, therefore... I can give it meaning. We just stop you at, oh, that's so sad and depressing. I, I have to help you. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think it's important. Um, this idea that, you know, Hannah Arendt and Nietzsche, I think, also have in common this idea that suffering is part of life and it's actually important politically. And this drive to get rid of suffering is actually a drive to getting rid of meaning in life, the ability to actually think about uh, why am I suffering? Mm -hmm. So again, similar to boredom, the sort of 
trying to be constantly entertained instead of saying, no, 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 boredom is important. It's actually a useful part of life. It's an indicator of, uh, you know, where you're supposed to be and where you're not supposed to be. Um, and so again, the sort of, if you think, you know, you should be smiling and happy all the time. And then if you're not smiling and happy, it's something wrong with you instead of it being about the situation you're in. So again, the sort of suffering as a signal to you to question your, your situation instead of just saying, oh, I guess I need more therapy. Mm -hmm. Or the, you know, the implicit, the idea that everyone should be smiling is sort of the implicit, almost fascist normalcy of you should, you should be happy. Whereas, you know, that, that idea that not being happy means you're unhappy is just a ridiculous right, right. idea. It's like, well, I'm just being like, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. No. And I think it's again, the sort of question of we, we take for granted that you're supposed to ask, why aren't you smiling instead of, well, why are, why are you smiling? Mm. What have you got to smile about? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, I'm, when it comes to philosophy, I'm always interested in, in, uh, you know, what happens when we push this and with a lot of, philosophical ideas because they've got something to hold on to you can sort of theorize what might happen when it's pushed to its limit but i mean you know we've spoken about it i guess in social terms you know the absolute limit of nihilism is almost the nihilist from the big lebowski right just they're nihilists they're just in that pool they are just this basically this floating being who <laughs> you know is is just well, you can't you can't really describe it because there's nothing that they can actually attach to. I mean, do you, do you think there is a possibility of saying, right, we're gonna we're going to accelerate nihilism to the point where it breaks? Do you think it could ever break? Um, yeah, I mean, you could imagine climate change is sort of one way of doing that um, because at at some point reality is forcing itself on us through the world burning, uh, melting. Uh, at the same time as as it's freezing and you know so it's again the sort of um, people keep talking about climate change as the future instead of realizing no it's it's here and it's been here for a while and again it's privileged uh, positioning that allows you to say it's it's still you know something in the future for us to worry about and that yeah I think you are sort of driven to to the realization like it's not just that I need to change, uh, but the world has to radically change. And again, it's not like COVID uh, was good for making us realize that maybe we're not going to do that. And maybe there are some people who will, and there's going to be a hell of a lot of people who won't. And this is going to be a big problem for us. And that even things like democracy, um, you know, that might not work. That if it's uh, if it comes down to a majority vote, and the majority say no, I'm I'm okay with uh, seeing how far we can go with this, and then uh, you know maybe Bezos and Musk will will build spaceships to get us to Mars or whatever. Um, yeah, what do we do then, right? If we just say, well, the world ended, but at least we stayed democratic. Um, so that's I think always the fear is that if we if climate change is an existential threat on a global scale, um, we're going to be forced to reckon with yeah a lot of our nihilistic uh, ways of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember thinking uh, at the start of the whole COVID thing, when there was big lockdowns, that maybe this will be enough. People started to seem to, you know, I see things online, people, you know, maybe growing veg or starting hobbies or, or sort of changing and realizing maybe their way of life 
that they're living isn't for them. And I think a few people, a few people have sort of changed, but it it made me realize that most people just want to now just do their jobs at home. And then I sort of lost all that faith when I realized that I think all the majority of big cruise ship companies are sold out for like the next five years. Now. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the, that was the pin right, in that right. balloon of hope. So, I mean, in terms of the, this discussion that we're having, the, the COVID thing seems to be almost a, like a panic button, you know, you pulled back the curtain for a second of what people's lives are like in terms of nihilism. And instead of them exploring that possibility of, well, it could be something else, they've retreated very swiftly, you know, like seeing the, the Wizard of Oz and realizing he's behind the curtain, but then going, nah, just close the curtain again. We were enjoying, <laughs> we were enjoying all the tricks. Right. Which is, you know, so I mean, yeah, but I guess the question then is, it's almost a fascist question of, is it right to, to push people to drag people out of their uh false stasis right yeah no i think this is what uh yeah is, is it uh you know paternalistic or does it go full fascist but again the sort of yeah at some point uh do we because this is again part of the the active nihilism at least is questioning uh the values of even things like democracy which doesn't mean that you immediately say, well, if I'm going to question democracy, I must be a fascist. It's just instead saying, well, for certain things in certain situations, there might come a time uh, when we really have to look at these things and wonder, uh, you know, what really needs to be done mm. and how fast does it have to be done um, and what's the means to do it. And I think it's, it's uh, again, it makes us uncomfortable we don't like thinking about it. So you either say, well, I'll pay someone else to think about it for me. Uh, or I just refuse to think about it and I hope it all works out. Mm-hmm. But then ultimately there is a, there is the big event, right? There is, there is death, which is if we didn't have a, I mean, it's an interesting question. What happens with nihilism when, if you were to live eternally, you know, what, what that's, that's interesting. But I mean, in what was, what role do you think death plays? Do you think you know? Do you, do you subscribe to the the Ernst, uh, Ernest Becker idea that death is behind every single thing we do, or do you think death is some, you know death is something we're avoiding in terms of nihilism, or do you think even perhaps yeah. even that it's just not even a thing? Yeah, no, I think uh, you know it's important how close um, mortality and nihilism are, and our sort of unwillingness to think about our own death as sort of, um, you know, a, a source of our unwillingness to think about everything else connected to death. So unwilling to think about the future, unwilling to think about risks, danger. And this is really what my first book was about, the idea that um, we tell soldiers returning from war, um, you know, that your preoccupation with death makes you crazy. Mm-hmm. And that we need to make you a good, rational, sane person who doesn't care about death anymore. So it really does feel like, you know, we outnumber you, so we get to define sanity. Mm-hmm. So what, 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 what do you think the sort of, did you, did you come to some solutions in that first text with regards to what, what's to be done with death in, in the face of nihilism? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's important to think about death and not think that people are just being morbid mm. um, in the same way that when, again, it's taken for granted, well, you can't be responsible all the time. 
And the, the number of people I see on Twitter who say things like this, like, well, it's, you know, you got to take a break. You got to have some free time. And then it becomes like, okay, but do you ever actually take responsibility? Like, when do you stop having the break? When do you stop having the relaxation time? Um, so, yeah, I do think it, it is. Uh, it's fascinating to me that we say uh, with such assurance you can't be responsible all the time as if like you tried it and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that's an interesting idea as well, though, is it like even if you've whatever take a break means like you can somehow just detach from everything what does it then mean right. to say like right i'm going you know i'm plugging back in i'm suddenly you know i'm suddenly having meaning that meaning <laughs> you know that meaning has yeah, to yeah. be there right all along so there's a maybe there is a bit of a self self deceit in the in that in the the idea of a break is just another form of you know it's just a different form of nihilism right right man well but it doesn't have to be i mean maybe you know near near in the end here it doesn't it doesn't have to be depressive right and this can be a a life affirming thing yeah no i find it very depressing when people take things for granted so that might make you happy that doesn't mean it makes it healthy mm -hmm. and uh, i think that is an important distinction um and i think this is again why nietzsche saw himself as sort of a cultural physician that he was trying to diagnose, uh, you know, these these sort of illnesses and seeing nihilism as an illness. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I guess because this 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 video will probably be just titled nihilism, and I guess if anyone, you know, those sort of people who are into nihilism or have that misappropriation of it as Nietzsche as this nihilist, that's something to clear up. Is that really his? Once he'd realised that, you know, after after the death of God, his whole project was, well, you know, how how can we deal with this? Not not dwelling in it right yeah no i think uh you know you you uh you write about what you know which also means that you don't see yourself as above it um and this is why you know in my in my nihilism and technology book i i use the word we uh which you know always makes me worried when students do it so i tried to say at the beginning you know i'm i'm doing that to, to indicate that I'm, I'm just as, as sick as you are, you know, I'm just as, uh, as culpable. I'm, I'm just as, as, uh, I'm, I'm just writing about what I know. I'm writing about what I do. Okay. Okay. Are you, are you planning on writing more on nihilism or are you, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll probably never not, uh, whether it's, it's there in the text or not, I'm sure it'll be there somehow. Okay. Okay. I mean, do you, is it tough now for you personally, like with other philosophical interests, do they all sort of just gravitate towards nihilism now? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I can't uh, not question the meaning of whatever it is that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that, you know, like, like we've said before, some people would say, oh, that's constantly, that's unhealthy, whatever that means. But, well, that's your own, you know, implicit normalcy that's developed that idea. Yeah, it's just a, another pathology. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, whereabouts can we find your um, your work? Um, well, Amazon, but uh, hopefully at an independent bookstore near you. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, I think that's a good place to finish up. Um, Nolan Gertz, thanks very much. Thank you.